This episode is brought to you by the Worth Your Time podcast, where your host, that's me, Erica Anderson, brings you unique and interesting conversations with Christian women working in the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. See you there. Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you are listening to Revive Thoughts. Because a park is better than and preferable to a single tree, and the body is better than a limb, so also in the sight of God is the reformation of a whole church preferable to the progress of a single soul. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered to date. We are listening to a sermon from the year 361. It was preached by Gregory of Nazianzus. Troy, we have more Patreons to shout out. Yes. Brandon and Gina have joined our, our Patreon support team, and we are so thankful again uh, for week after week. We are blown away that people still keep on signing up to support us on Patreon. Thank you so much. Joel, do you remember what you were doing in the year 361? No. I, I, nobody no. would, because that is so far back. It's way beyond any of us. I, I always try to remind us when we're doing one of these old church fathers that these people are old. They're from a really long time ago. And so they're going to talk a little different. They're going to be a little bit different. And that's kind of part of the fun, I think, um, of doing episodes like this, doing episodes like Boniface, doing episodes like St. Augustine. And speaking of St. Augustine, uh, when this sermon is being preached, St. Augustine is still a pretty young kid. The Roman Empire had just barely acknowledged Christians for about 50 years. And again, this is 1700 years ago. It's a completely different world. Uh, we've done several episodes now, St. Augustine, Origin, Chrysostom, Basil, uh, at least on her show, Mars and Missionaries, just did Polycarp. And we just always want to remind you to kind of give them some space because they're going to be a little bit different, but it's also cool, not how much that they're different, but actually how much they're the same as us. Yeah, Gregory, th- he is a neat story. He is a neat background, you know, how he was brought up and he is a neat, uh, he finds himself in a lot of neat places in the early church. He was born in the year 330, and his father, who was also named Gregory, so a little bit confusing there. He's Gregory, his father's Gregory. His father was a pagan, but he married a Christian woman and was converted to Christianity through the testimony of his wife. They became serious about their faith and started pursuing ministry, and they came across some bishops that were actually on their way to the Council of Nicaea, and those bishops made Gregory... Gregory's father, Gregory, uh, the bishop of their hometown, Nazianzus. So Gregory grew up in a Christian home, but he was educated in very different schools. And and while he was at school, he actually became friends with Basil. And not only Basil, but he also would develop another friend named Julian. And Julian plays a, a specific part in his story because he would go on to become the emperor of Rome. He would be known as Julian the Apostate. Now, Gregory did not really seem like he wanted to become a preacher. And you'll even hear in this sermon, like he's really struggling with this, uh, what's coming his way. He taught rhetoric, he was very, which was very common at the time, it's basically speech giving skills, which was important back in those days. But he really wanted to be a monk. Uh, during this era, there was this idea that living on your own in nature was the best way to worship God, just getting away from people. His friend Basil the Great was a huge champion of that, had his own big monastery, and Gregory enjoyed spending time there. He wrestles with this desire to get away from worldly troubles, and, and let's be honest, I think we can all at times relate with that feeling of wanting to just kind of be separate from the world a little bit. 
but he joins his dad's church. His dad's church is in bad shape. The local monks accuse his dad of heresy, and the church was fracturing all over. When Gregory gets there, it takes him about a year to kind of set things right and get things better situated, but he's very diplomatic. People really like him, and so this kind of whole thing settles down. But now, in the year 362, just the year afterward, Gregory's old school buddy, Emperor Julian, is now the emperor. He has taken charge, and he declares he is no longer a Christian and is, in fact, against Christianity. And this is the first emperor in 50 years to just be straight up, we don't like Christianity anymore. And Gregory does not take a quiet approach to dealing with this problem. He boldly launches a series of attacks against the emperor for rejecting Christianity, gives speeches, and writes these kind of letters to him, basically saying, stop it, this is wrong. Yeah, so imagine imagine this scene, right? You have this new emperor, Julian, and he decides to bring back the temples. He decides to bring back the ancient gods, the Roman gods. And so there's this huge festival. There's this sacrifice festival that would take place in the middle of town. And when he's making this sacrifice to the Roman gods, an old blind man is led up by a child, and the man says, you are an atheist who does not know God and an apostate. And Julian responds, You are a blind man. Where is your Galilean God to save you and give you sight? And the blind man responds as he walks away, He took away my sight so I would never have to see something as godless as you. <sighs> Pretty cold. That's <laughs> not what you want to hear. Which isn't you know necessarily directly related to our story, but it just gives you a sense of what would become... Julian's dislike and hatred of Christians. And even secular historians will believe that his, Julian had a very interesting, very unique approach to trying to attack Christians. He proposed tolerance to any groups that had been banished. So under him, Arians and Manicheans, anyone who had been kicked out before by Christians, we're now welcome back. So he's not going to ban Christians, but he's going to invite back in all of these cults, essentially, that uh, the Christians had kind of driven out and banished these these kind of false Christians that are now invited back into kind of hassle and fight with the existing Christians that are in the area. Then he would, this emperor, would go and pay people money to publicly renounce Christianity. So if you would just say, I don't want to be a Christian anymore, you would be making quite a bit of money to do that. And I mean, that may sound a little silly, but you know, Judas Iscariot gave up Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. This emperor probably heard that story and thought, okay, so people give up Jesus for money. And he's brilliant because he's a smart guy and he knows that you could see the history that persecution just drives Mm -hmm. Christians, makes Christians stronger. He grew up knowing Gregory and maybe Basil. So he had to sit there and think about if I'm going to get rid of you guys, I know where I have to go. I have to get you guys to get rid of yourselves, basically. So then he took away all the teachers because they wouldn't respect the gods of, of uh, Homer and Iliad and all this stuff. He said, if you're not going to respect these gods that you're teaching about, we're not going to let you teach about them. And if you want to come up to our schools and teach about these gods like they're real, like you do your god, then that's fine. But as long as you won't admit these gods are real, then I can't have you teaching them. You're not going to do a good job. This got rid of the teachers, and it also got rid of the students because now the students wouldn't be allowed, wouldn't worship these gods. And so suddenly all these schools that had been built over the years to preach and teach Christianity that were supposed to be out learning the scriptures were suddenly by the government forced to become something new completely. And they were now pagan schools that were creating new pagans. You can see why Gregory was upset. So when he wrote these invectives and basically was like, you're a bad guy and we, you know, we can't stand by this. Julian responded to his old friend by saying, I'm going to wipe away all of you Christians. I, I, you're going to talk to me like that. I'm the emperor. I'm the God King guy. Basically I'm going to destroy you. But first I got to go deal with 
this Persian kingdom empire over here. They're kind of rebellious. I'm going to go defeat them. And when I come back, expect all of you guys to be done away with. But he doesn't return. His army would end up kind of getting tricked by an enemy spy into wandering through the desert. But the most, I think, you, in, in, the, in an ancient sense, ironic sense, was he ends up against this Persian kingdom with, with a lot of numbers. And the people that were supposed to come and help him, the Armenians, do not come. They don't show up. They said they would. But when the battle starts, they're nowhere to be seen. The interesting, maybe ironic part of that is the Armenians were the first Christian kingdom in the world. And you could maybe, there could be a case, it's not said anything, but it could be possible that they weren't really happy with what he was doing to Christians back in Rome. And so they thought, you know what, we'll let you, uh, let you fight this one on your own. We're not going to get involved. We're not going to help you out, Rome, because you're not treating people the way you're supposed to. We don't know that that's what happened, but they definitely didn't show up. They definitely lose the battle and he dies. After Julian dies, the next emperor, pro-Christian, he's a Christian himself. He's, he's totally fine with it. But now they have to deal with this new problem. All these heresies, all these cults are back inside the kingdom, back inside the empire. And there are so many problems they have to deal with. There are many things that kind of go on after this. Gregory is very busy and we probably will have to talk about him more again in the future. But the most important thing for now is when Basil the Great dies, who we did an episode on, it is Gregory who steps in, who says, I'm going to write a defense of the Trinity that will hopefully stand the test of time. Maybe this will be, you know, he gives us speeches and stuff. And he says, these will be the defense that will, that will put, in, uh, put to rest all this fighting over the Trinity. Yeah. So Gregory, uh, despite retiring to a monastery, and we see this, we see this thread throughout his whole life where he just wants to get away <laughs> to a peaceful mountainside to spend time worshiping God. He wants to live that monastic life, uh, but he comes out of that retirement to work in Constantinople, which was one, I mean, one of the biggest, busiest cities in, in the world at that time. And while he was there, he had a profound effect on Jerome, who's another big name in church history. But while he's there, he gives his defense of the Trinity and why God is three persons in one that are each equal, but all also all equally God at the same time. And it's his analysis and his description and study and dissection of what the Trinity is, is still something that is studied and, and looked at even today. Yeah. When I had to learn semin in seminary where I was at uh, in theology class, that was the, that was the five speeches that were like, go read this. If you want to talk about the Trinity, like you have to read this for school because this is still it. So 1700 years later, his is still one of the best works on the Trinity. He eventually bows out of political affairs, bows out of ecclesiastical stuff. He, he's just, he, you can see the whole story. He just, he wants to be done with this stuff. Um, and he had some, he did his, he did what he wanted. He cemented the Trinity into place. Things, things seem to be going better. And so he kind of withdraws. He'll go off to a monastery. He'll continue writing letters and supporting people that way, but he won't no longer in person be doing the work. Um, he, it's interesting because uh, one person pointed out that even he, he took a vow of silence for a year, but he continued writing letters. So he's still communicating with people, but he's not talking to them for a year. Yeah. So throughout his life, it, he, he feels like Paul, you know, where he says it's better to leave, but I will stay for the sake of the people, right? The people are what he doesn't want to be <laughs> working with the people. He doesn't want to be in politics. He doesn't want to be leading churches, but for the sake of the hearts of the people, he will do it. He wants to be a monk in the monastery where he can uh, fully focus on worshiping God, but he keeps getting drawn back into the church to help there because they need his help. So in this sermon, we hear his heart struggling with these two sides of, of his love.
my mouth and I breathe in the Spirit and I give myself and my all to the Spirit. All my actions and speech, my inaction and silence, only let him hold me and guide me and move both hand and mind and tongue where it is right and where he wills and restrain them as it is right and expedient. I am an instrument of God, a rational instrument, an instrument turned and struck by that skillful artist, the Spirit. Yesterday his work in me was silence. I thought about refraining from speech. Does he strike upon my mind today? My speech will be heard. I will think on words. I am never so talkative and so desire to speak more than when he has me be silent. And I am never so reserved and ignorant except when it is time to have me speak. But I am open and close my door at the will of that mind and word and spirit who is one kindred deity. I will speak then since I am burdened to do so. And I will speak both to the good shepherd here and to you, his holy flock, as I think it is best for me to speak to both. Why is it that you have begged for one to share your shepherd's toil? For my speech will begin with you, O dear and honored head, worthy of that of Aaron, for down which runs that spiritual and priestly ointment upon his beard and clothing. Why is it that while yet able to establish and guide many, and actually guiding them in the power of the Spirit, you have decided to support yourself with a staff and prop in your spiritual works? Is it because you have heard and know that even the illustrious Aaron anointed Eleazar and Ithamar, the sons of Aaron? For I am passing over Nadab and Abihu, lest the illusion be ill-omened. And Moses during his lifetime appointed Joshua in his stead as lawgiver and general over those who were pressing on the land of promise? The office of Aaron and Hur, supporting the hands of Moses on the Mount of Amalek, was warred down by the cross, prefigured and typified long before. I feel willing to pass by as not very suitable or applicable to us. For Moses did not choose them to share his work as lawgiver, but as helpers in his prayer and supports for the weariness of his hands. What is it that ails you? What is your weakness? Is it physical? I am ready to sustain you, and I have sustained and been sustained like Jacob of old by your fatherly blessings. Is it spiritual? Who is stronger and more fervent when the power of the flesh are ebbing and fading and dim the brilliancy of a light? For these battles which wage war upon and pose one another, that of the flesh and the light, all the while the body's health is purchased by the sickness of the soul. And the soul flourishes and look upward when pleasures are stilled and faded away alongside the body. But, wonderful as your simplicity and nobility have seemed to me before, how is it that you have no fear that your spirit will be considered a pretext for corruption? And that most men will assume, in spite of our spiritual speeches, that we are undertaking this form from carnal motives. For most men have made the office to be looked upon as great and princely, and accompanied with a considerable enjoyment, even though a man has the charge and rule over more slender flock than this. And being a shepherd affords more trouble than pleasure, for a mind hardly roused to evil is slow to suspect evil. My second duty is briefly to address these people of yours, who are now also mine. I have been overpowered, my friends and brethren, for I will now ask for your aid. I have been overpowered by the old age of the shepherd, and, to use the moderate terms, the kindliness of my friend. So help me, each of you who can, and stretch out a hand to me, who is pressed down and torn asunder by regret and enthusiasm. Though 
One suggests flights whose dreams of mountains and deserts and the calm soul and body. And that the mind should retire into itself and reject sensible things in order to hold pure communion with God and be clearly illumined by the flashing rays of the Spirit with no addition or disturbance of the divine light by anything earthly or clouded. To do this until we come to the source of the radiance which we enjoy here and regret and desire are alike done away with when these mirrors pass away in the light of truth. The one sides with me wills that I should come forward and bear fruit for the common good and be helped by helping others and publish the divine light to the world and bring to God a people for his own possession, a holy nation, a royal priesthood, and his image cleanses many souls. And I desire this because a park is better than and preferable to a single tree. The whole heaven with its ornaments is better than a single star, and the body is better than a limb. So also in the sight of God is the reformation of a whole church preferable to the progress of a single soul. Therefore, I ought not to look only for my own interest, but also on that of others. For Christ also, when it was possible for him to abide in his own honor and deity, not only emptied himself as to take the form of a slave, but also endure the cross, despising the shame that he might by his own suffering destroy sin and by death slay death. The former are the imaginings of my desire, the later the teachings of the Spirit. And I, standing midway between the desire and the Spirit, and not knowing to which of these two feelings I should rather yield, will impart to you what seems to me the best and safest course, that you may examine this with me and take part in my plans. It seems to me to be best and least dangerous to take was a middle course between desire and fear, and to yield in part to desire and in part to the Spirit. And that this would be the case, if neither altogether evaded the office of priest and so refused the grace which would be dangerous, but not yet assumed a burden beyond my powers, for it is a heavy one to be a shepherd. But piety and safety would alike advise me to proportion the office to my power, and as in the case with food, to accept that which is within my power and refuse what is beyond it. For health is gained for the body and tranquility for the soul by such a course of moderation." Therefore, I now consent to share in the cares of our excellent shepherd. I will be like an eaglet, not yet vainly flying close to a mighty and high-soaring eagle, but hereafter I will offer my wing to the Spirit to be born where and as he wills. No one will force or drag me in any direction contrary to his counsel. For sweet it is to inherit a father's toils, and this flock is familiar to me. I would even add more precious in the sight of God than some, unless the spell of affection has deceived me. Nor is there any more useful or safer course that willing rulers should rule willing subjects, since it is our practice not to lead by force or by compulsion, but by goodwill. For this would not hold together another form of government, since that which is held in by force would desire, when opportunity arises, to reach out for freedom. But freedom of will more than anything else is what holds together our uh, I will not call it rule, but tutorship. For the mystery of godliness belongs to those who are willing, not to those who are overpowered by force. This is my speech to you, my good men, uttered in simplicity and with all goodwill, and this is the secret of my mind. And may the victory rest with that which will be for the profit of both you and me under the Spirit's guidance of our affairs. 
to whom we have given ourselves and the head anointment with the oil perfection and the Almighty Father and the only begotten Son and the Holy Spirit, who is God. For how long we will hide the lamp under the bushel and withhold from others the full knowledge of the Godhead when it should be now put upon the lampstand and give light to all churches and souls and to the whole fullness of the world, no longer by means of metaphors or intellectual sketches, but by distinct declarations. And this indeed is a most perfect setting forth of theology to those who have been deemed worthy of this grace in Christ Jesus himself, our Lord, to whom be glory, honor, and power forever. Amen. I really don't think Gregory would have expected the stuff that he did during his lifetime to be studied 1,700 years later. If you listen to the sermon here, guys, all right, I'm going to do this. I think it's good. I think God wants me to do this, but I, you know, I'm going to this pretty hesitantly. Uh, and it's not like a uh, an anxious, like I'm nervous, or it's a, it's a hesitant, like, oh, I don't really want to. It's like, I really don't, I would much rather spend time with God, but if I got to go do this, I'm going to go do this for a while until I'm able to get back to God. You see that in his life, and yet I think he would be surprised to find out that 1,700 years later, he was being used still by God, even though he had a plan for his life, which was just to sit on a hill and learn about God, I suppose. God had a bigger plan that would use his knowledge and his love for him. That desire to be with him is what made him such an effective teacher because nobody questioned whether Gregory knew God and loved God and had a relationship with that triune God. And so when he talked, when he spoke, he just had so much authority. He did it so well that I think that's why 1,700 years later, he's still some of the best material you can read on the Trinity and still some of the best thoughts you can find out there. And we do encourage you, go find some of those things. Go read his five orations that are very famous if you have not done that already. Um, This is a great church father that we're glad we get to feature on this show. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Patrick Studebaker. Patrick is one half of the Cave to the Cross podcast with his mentor, Tony. He also runs a multimedia and website development business supporting small churches and Christian creators. He lives in Southwest Michigan with his wife and two girls. He also likes watching bad sci-fi B-movies. There you go. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Revive Thoughts. We hope and encourage you to uh, share this episode with a friend. Maybe you have a friend who enjoys theology. This might be the kind of thing that they really geek out and enjoy. Or maybe you have somebody who just has some questions, and this might be a way to introduce them to writings of the past, people of the past that they would know in no way otherwise get interested in, but somebody reads them a sermon and they can just listen to it and feel like they're kind of in church maybe for a moment, but back in that church 500, 700, 1,000 years ago, whatever, that might be really encouraging them to them too. So we really do encourage you guys. We, we do a lot of things, Joel and I do a lot of things to build Revive Studios and build Revive Thoughts and market and stuff, but honest to goodness, nothing we do, we are not smarter than just people telling friends and letting others know about this show. That goes farther than anything else so if this show encourages you we hope that you can encourage others with it too this is troy angel and this is revive thoughts
This episode is brought to you by the Worth Your Time podcast, where you'll hear from Christian female entrepreneurs, politicians, ministry leaders, authors, athletes, CEOs, and more. I'm Erica Anderson, mom of two, writer, and host and creator of Worth Your Time. I created this podcast because I wanted to hear from more women like me who were interested in the intersection of faith, politics, and culture. How do we navigate the choppy waters of partisan politics? How do we engage with culture honorably as Christian professionals? I know you don't have a lot of time and that's why I make every second worth it on this show. You'll hear from women that aren't on every other Christian podcast, and we get really real, because I don't know how to function any other way. Episodes drop every other Tuesday. Hope to see you there.